Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Gomology, the podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is Anthony Hicks of uh, menswear retailer Assembly. I know Anthony as a stubbornly independent retailer <laughs> in the lovely little village of Froome. Welcome, Anthony. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello. Hi, Nick. Um, yes, I'm indeed Anthony from Assembly in Froome. Um, I would say it's a small market town. I'd like to think it's a village, but it's a it's a small market town in uh, the depths of Somerset in the southwest in the UK. Um, it's a old wool market town, um, and it has a particularly thriving independent shop. I was going to say high street, but it's not really an independent shop scene. There we go. That's that. It's a sort of very steep cobbled street isn't it with quite a yes. variety of different shops yes it's uh it's an old um it's quite an old medieval town um and it was to give it sort of context of market town it was a wool market town so um the shepherds and farmers would bring the sheep and the wool particularly down from um the quantock hills which are over towards the bristol channel um, into town and where the, the fleeces were sold. There was no spinning or anything like that. There was a, a couple of small mills, but nothing like an industrial scale, as far as I'm aware. Um, there, It's known for its woad dyeing. And oh. there is, in the centre of town, there is an old nunnery, and they were known as the Blue Nuns. Nothing to do with the white wine from Germany. <laughs> uh, I think it's German, isn't it? Um, and uh, yeah, the the woad dyeing within the town, at which still is a little bit. There were the blue nuns, and also there was the woad dyers were affectionately known as the blue ladies because they had blue hands. Um, it then suffered. The town itself suffered drastically, as a lot of market towns did. Um, through the 90s recessions. The street that I'm on, which is the little cobbled street, uh, wasn't actually initially cobbled. It was cobbled by the town council at some point in the mid-90s to try and regenerate the town, which very forward thinking. Um, Unfortunately, I actually met the lady who used to own my store when it was a hairdresser's, and the cobbling of the street sort of paralysed her business. So she actually lost her business. But Ouch. then how, how did that happen? Um, I think because they had, they had, it was such a sort of rat run through that I think a lot of people just drove up, parked up wherever, went, got out of the car, went shopping and off they went. Um, but yeah, the town benefits from uh, a couple of steep streets, Catherine Hill, which is where I am, and... Cheap Street. Cheap Street is way more medieval, um, quite Harry Potter-esque in places, to conjure up an image in your mind. Um, It also has a little leet running down the middle of it, which is a little gully stream, which feeds from a well at, I wouldn't say All Saints Church at the top. Um, It's quite beautiful, little market square. Um, And yeah, following following the decline... Um, it then sort of started to regenerate itself kind of in the early noughties. There was, um, uh, it got a lot of overspill of artists from Bath because Bath is about 20 odd miles away, which is beautiful but costly. And Froome is beautiful but has, you know, much the same architecture. You can virtually buy a house from any century. Um, and it had this influx of art. And then we have uh, Babington House down the road, which is part of the Soho House Group, um, which is about 20 years ago. So it was kind of a bit of a an influx of different people coming to the area, um, discovering it, people moving down from London, um, it getting a small amount of press, and then it kind of sort of grew from there, I think. Because it does have a bit of that sort of trendy, shoreditchy vibe about yes. it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I 
I was originally in Shoreditch, ironically. <laughs> okay. Even though I claim to not be a Londoner, because I'm not. Um, and uh, my then partner and I, we moved down. We followed some friends, basically, down to the West Country. We were spending a lot of time down there. Um, friends' parents were like, you should go see Froome. You guys would love it. And we sort of went over and was like, this is great. It's got a beautiful atmosphere. It's a beautiful little town. Interesting little shops. Looks like it's on the verge of something. Um, but I don't know where it is. You know, when you're just like, I, I can't locate it geographically. I don't know where it is. Um, in relationship to what on earth I would do for work. Because at that point in time, I was working for uh, an independent in uh, North London called Sefton, which was a menswear, women's boutique. We had like five shops. Um, I was actually working part-time as a the buying assistant. Um, so sort of learned the trade. And um, yeah, we sort of moved down and it was only later on that we had friends that opened a shop there and through circumstances sort of decided I'd quite like to do the same thing. And they were like, come to Froome. So... I did. And the rest is the rest is history. <laughs> yes, and that was like ten years ago. So, right. So you've had uh, you've had assembly for almost ten years now. Yes, it'd be tenth birthday is on the fourth of December this year. So, wow. which is amazing. That is uh, it's impressive to have an independent shop in a small market town going that long. Yes, it's it's. I think it's. I mean, the business itself has morphed over the years. I mean, I didn't initially start um, as a menswear store. I started kind of as what was a lifestyle store at that point in time. Um, I popped up for the Christmas when a pop-up was a thing. And, um, yeah, we just sort of, it grew from there. And then it was like, oh, you should do clothes and you know, fashion is my background. Um, I studied to degree level um, and then worked for many years uh, with Red or Dead in London, which was ace. It's really good fun. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always worked, fashion has always worked retail. Um, had hankering to design, but I haven't really done that until now. We'll talk about that later. Um, yep. And um, yeah, it was it was okay. Let's do this. So we start. I started by getting some um, some army surplus bits, like really quirky, interesting army surplus bits, like digging around, um, sort okay. of styling them up, throwing in some t-shirts, um, and then I I think I got approached. Oh, or actually, I did not contact. I can't remember. Um, but I ended up contacting Armalux, which was the French uh, Breton brand, as was uh, before they sort of grew into what they are now. Um, primarily because they did ethical cotton, and when I started the store, I wanted everything to be British, ethical. Um, I say British, not in a Brexit way. Just to be clear, um, <laughs> and not in a Breton way. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it sort of just grew from there, and it was kind of like so. It's kind of like I started with the classic. You start with the classic stripe, start with the classic white tee, navy tee, throw that in with the the military stuff, and before I know it, I had like a couple of racks of clothing, and. Armalux then started to expand because I started to buy beyond the essential and just go um, full season. And then I literally did a trade show and off I went. (laughs) Right, because now you've expanded into mainly British brands, haven't you? Yes, yes. So it's it's still, still, I think, um, so at the moment I have Armalux, which is French. And I have Moonstar, which is the footwear, which is Japanese. Um, Dallied in various footwears as as I've gone over the years. But yes, everything is British brands. If it's British brand, British fabric, British manufacturer, it's even better. So 
excuse me, Universal Works, for example, do they produce in the UK, Portugal, and India? Um, it's really easy to get the British stuff because it's more often not British cloth. Um, they're based in Nottingham. Um, a great company, really diverse range of product. Uh, then I have Kisten. Uh, he's Scottish again. British and Scottish fabrics, Scottish knitwear, um, and a lot of stuff produced in the UK. So it's it's very easy to find. Um, but now I've sort of discovered that I want to be even more British. So um, hence. <laughs> Hence, Yarmouth, who I know you know, um, yeah. Yarmouth Stores, or as is, I get confused because they have so many names. Um, well, but actually, the, the, the hipster version is yeah, Yarmouth Oreskin, isn't it? The hipster version is Yarmouth Oreskin, yes, which I'm currently wearing. So I have a very battered pair of blue dungarees on. Um, okay. And yeah, because I've kind of wanted, since I started, to find the sort of quintessential workwear jacket which you get through Vitra or Le Laboureur and all of those kinds of things that come out of France but I kind of wanted a British one because I knew it would exist and I found Yarmouth at Jacket Required and went over and did my sort of classic buyer's opening line, which is, you say you're a British brand, are you actually a British <laughs> brand, or are you one of those ones where you've sort of bought the name and you make it in Portugal? And they were yeah. they were offended slightly, bless them. Um, <laughs> and we're, no, absolutely not. We are this. Unfortunately, that season I had no budget, um, so I had to kind of wait a season and a half. And now I have them in, and it's it. They're so lovely, and it's every time I go and every time I see them, I feel like I'm an external examiner, and I've turned up at their crit, and they sort of show me pieces like we've done this. Is this okay? And we've done this, and and I took a trip to the factory last summer, um, which was great, and yeah. So going going forward with store i'm pushing for even more british and they are spearheading that move shall we say do you find customers are interested in british things that they actually make a point of that being important i've always i've always uh, kind of no it's always been sort of i've had it as a subtext from the shop if that makes sense Mm. So it's kind of like I've always wanted. I I've all I I buy, I buy a wardrobe rather than buying pieces, and um. So you can walk in and you can get like a shirt with a t-shirt. You can pop an overshirt over it and trousers, and it's the whole it's the whole combined look. Or you could just grab a t-shirt. Um. So I think the customer is, the customer is drawn in by the quality product, they're drawn in by the look of the store. Um, and then the history behind the garment or the production behind the garment is sort of down a couple of levels. However, I would say it's with current climates, with climate change, with the focusing on fast fashion and things like that, it's becoming a lot easier to educate. I think mm. because people are they're becoming aware but I still think it has that thing and I don't know what it is I think it's a generational thing but I have people they go well where do you because you're over you're scrutinized because you're an independent more than you would be if you were high street um, and why do you think that is do you, do you feel you have to prove yourself more than, say, a household name? Yeah, yeah, I think you do. I think you have to prove your 
you have to prove your worth and you have to prove your credentials. And occasionally you have customers that sort of try and prove you wrong. You sort of go, well, it's this, 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 this. And they're like, oh, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do fi- I do generally find that side of it quite odd at times. That Yes, you have, mm-hmm. to, you have to prove yourself. And when you say that it's British made, they're sort of like, mm, you don't really see that very much. And I'm a bit like, yeah, you do. You just, as a country, I would say England, rather than British, as a country of England, where sort of people forget that we haven't, I suppose it's a grassroots fashion industry, would be the best way of saying it. You know, we have, they don't see people like, say, Stella McCartney. They see that probably as a brand. They don't know that it's who she is, per se. They don't know Burberry. They don't know Burberry's history. I mean... We have um, Mulberry is also based in Somerset. It's literally just up the road. Um, and In Shepton Mallet. Yes, indeed. Uh, I just, where the cider comes from. Um, and yep. I just, I just don't think people know that, you know, and I think it's, it's just interesting. It's like, if you go through the current situation with the COVID outbreak and all the British companies that suddenly switched all their production from garments to making scrubs for the NHS. Mm. But all you get is, all we had was news of like, oh, we've got all these scrubs coming in from Turkey to do this in the Daily Mail or whatever it was. Um, but you didn't see like, you know, I think the only one that basically got a mention was Barber because it's the most known company. So Barber flipped over, started making scrubs. Yarmouth were making scrubs. Private White were making scrubs. You know, yeah. little people in little factories that I know about were all doing scrubs. And it, and it's kind of that, I think, that drove me to want to purchase British labels. and um, Because I think the, the history that we have here with uh, the mill industry and all of that, which is coming into focus as well with everything that's now happening with um, race issues. Um, is all of that history will hopefully become apparent again. And I think that, you know, the British fashion industry isn't, particularly the smaller companies, the mid companies, which the guys that I deal with, I don't think they're given the praise that they probably should do. And that's why it was something that when I opened the store and started doing those labels, it's like, I really want to champion this. Again, not in a Brexit way. <laughs> it sounds like you're very much a, a community guy. You're you're in the Froome community, but you're also sort of part of a, a wider British fashion yeah, clothes community. Yeah, I mean I I mean you've been to Froome, so you know it's it's this small place but has this incredible niche of stores like there's guys next door to me at nomad and then my friends up the road at um resident and then over the road is donna who is a you know designer in her own right she cut and makes um we always have a real giggle going into the the scandinavian shop oh at the top of the hill yes because of coming from scandinavia and then seeing it sort of um uh, suddenly they're being all special and exclusive and <laughs> it's uh it's quite uh, amusing and it's kind of commonplace so yes it is it's so there's very there's a community of us there but then it's it's only when i go out buying and i go visit other people and people contact me that i realize you know i have i have a nice little place in quite a big industry that you know what i do on quite a small scale is much appreciated. So that's a really, really nice feeling. A really nice feeling to have. I'd like to get into the to the bit about you being a small independent, because it's just you in the shop, isn't it? Yep. How is it these days when so many of the companies are just growing larger and larger? You've got Amazon, you've got Zalando, you've got all these massive online places that mm. offer um, mm. an amazing online experience and parcels to your doorstep within 24 hours and free returns and whatever. Mm-hmm. What is it like being David against these Goliaths of 
of trade. I think with, I think if you take the town as a whole, it's interesting because a lot of other retailers sort of deal with that. But I think it comes from the place that I've always worked shop. So I graduated in 95, um, all through university and college. I was a Saturday boy at Next under George Davis before he went to Aston. Apparently Next was really good before. Yes, it was amazing. So, I mean, God, I, I started work there. I didn't really know. I started work there when I was just first at, at college and started studying fashion because my dad was a draftsman. So, and I've always been art-based, but then there was something about pattern cutting that kind of, I think, appealed. So sort of the art, textiles, illustration, 3D construction, but then with this drafting, I think that pulled me into fashion. Um and yeah, I started working for Next, and at the time, they they still had factories in the north of England. Um, they used to, I think it was an Austin Reed factory, used to make their suiting and stuff and British knitwear, and um, really nice retail experience. And I mean, that was that was in the really early nineties when they were just launching the directory, which was their catalogue at the time, which carried so much more, which then became their online. So I think they ultimately were destined to being the big online retailer of the R, but they somehow managed to make it work with the two. And I think it was just a really good grounding because my manager at the time was kind of like, he could see I was interested in this, so he pushed me into doing things. I went to did summer work at head office and stuff like that. Um, I got to work with the merchandising team. Um, so it was a really good sort of foundation into the world of shop. And I think that then carried on going through fashion in London in the 90s was insane, as you could imagine. You know, I was I was the year below McQueen. I was the same year as Stella McCartney. I studied at Harrow and they were at St. Martin's and we had this kind of war between the two universities. Um, you know, fighting to get into fashion shows through British Fashion Week. It had that insane buzz about it because it was a much smaller world I suppose than it is now but those people they seemed like they were massive designers but they were just like a year above um right so I think working the whole but the whole time it was still the online presence didn't exist so it comes from sort of the old school world of shop and retailing and making a space matter and displaying things to the the best and you know, continuously, you know, at Next, it was merchandised all the time. You know, it changed so often. Um, and it was all a really good grounding. So I think to to come back to the question of how do you compete with places that are so big, I think it's like they're so big and we're so small that we're okay because we're small. I think it's the the middle bit of retail, which is the big department stores, so for Debenhams, for example, or House of Fraser, um, who carry multiple brands, but in the same town, all those all the brands that they carry have their own stores. So if you're going to go and buy something, you would go to the store rather than, or hit the online rather than the store. Um, but I think the rise of the small shopkeeper is, it's getting back to, Yes, the internet has its place for, I mean, God, during, you know, the time we're in now, yes. But I think the internet has its place for purchasing, bulk purchasing, um, fast fashion sits on the internet, it works there, it couldn't work in a retail environment. But I think, you know, a small, little independence like us, it's it's the personal, it's the personality of the shopkeeper it's the whims and personality of the shop it's the curation it's the point of contact it's much more relaxed and I think that's what keeps it keeps it going is the fact we're small enough to not compete if that makes sense I was about to say that it sounds like really you're not you're you've you're competing with them by not playing their game yes Yes, it's like I have a small website, I have an Instagram account, I have a Facebook page, um, all of those things. 
I have free delivery at the moment. Um, just because it makes it simple. Free delivery, I can't offer free returns, but it's something that you could do in the future, which is quite easy. I, But then I find my returns are minimal because, you know, I'm more of a considered purchase. And then there are the people who want to support small, and that's a growing movement. And I hope that anything that comes out of the current situation of lockdowns and people buying in different places. I mean, we have been to, as the household of forced upon, because of circumstance, we've been to supermarkets not even once a week. Wow. You know, we're going small green grocers. Okay, supermarkets like standalone small supermarkets, but we're going green grocers, butcher, fishmonger, corner shop. And I think, you know, each has their place. Um, but there's the I think what it is with the small is it's the theatre. It's the theatre of shop. You know, I know a lady in a little town not far from Froome who was considering selling her business. She was kind of preconted antiques and coffee and sort of bread and cakes. And then she started selling fruit, vegetables, bread everything and she's become this phenomenal like village shop right and she's like i can't i can't stop now because i've become i've become a service and yeah yeah. she's found a new purpose yeah it's found and we can adapt i think small can adapt you know if if you're going to have torrential rainstorms for a week i can put raincoats in the window if you're a big high street retailer that has to come as every store has to put coats in the window. The merchandising team, the buying team all get involved. The visuals get involved. You can't just literally change it overnight. So, you know, I think it's the small the small, and the ability to adapt is what works. And we'll hopefully try. If, if, if I can say something, I think I'd say don't offer free returns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it, it strikes me that the whole the whole business with the big ones now offering free shipping, free returns, and you see people just just ordering stuff just to look at it and then send it back. And yes. environmentally speaking, I mean it's a tragedy. It's uh, but of course, I mean these big guys are so big that their shipping deals are insanely cheap. Yeah, uh, I remember um, my partner was doing a shoot for something. And they ordered some stuff from an online retailer. No names mentioned. Um, product arrived. And I remember him saying to me, it's like, two of the coats were like worn and scuffed. And I was like, yeah, they'll just get them back and repackage them and turn them around. No one will check them. They probably haven't been steamed. They just came out and went back in again. And he's right. like, how can they do that? And I was just like, because that's what they do. You know, it's we have this level of care and support, and I suppose even in a small town like that, we are a a support network. But also, you know, we, we in Froome in particular, I think we're a small town that has attracted a certain clientele from, say, London and other cities. Who, and I think this is a reason probably for my success is like I moved from Shoreditch to the countryside with a taste level and my taste level didn't change and I think other people have done the same thing and their taste levels haven't changed so to be able to buy the products the clothing labels the bread the coffee the whatever it is within the small town that they live brilliant that's why you succeed you know you're a you're a closed market in a way because you're small um, and you adapt, you can adapt your offer. Um, and yeah, I think it's, I think it's, that's what it is. It's the ability to adapt and the ability to understand on a very small level, your customer base. I have noticed you have a very, very personal touch in what you do. And you, you I mean, the outfits you put together and, um, mm-hmm. n- 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 it's, yeah. it's just um, 
Yeah, let me get. Yeah, I have noticed you have a, a very, very personal touch. The outfits you put together and the photography is is really great. And that's what I noticed when I was passing by your shop in Froome the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the window just caught my attention. I thought, wow, great. I think it's, I think it's, so I did the shop before the website. So I wanted the website very much to reflect the shop because it was, I felt it's, you've been to the shop you may not have purchased, you want to go away and think about it, but you need an outlet to purchase, so online. But I wanted the customer to be reminded of the shop when they view the online pages. And that was a very definite... I didn't want it to be bland. Um, but with re- regarding the outfitting, it's, as I said before, that's that's the way I buy. I buy a wardrobe. I don't buy pieces, so it's um, it's very much. I'll I'll go buying. It's like say for example Yarmouth because they are they have set pieces. They're easy. They're like a stock label if that makes sense. They're trans seasonal. Mm-hmm. They run and run. Um, and when I buy seasonally, which I'm slowing down on for obvious reasons. Um, as I think we'll get back of, to that in a moment. Yeah, um, I think that just putting, you know, when I go to say Uni Works, it's like, oh, that's great, that's great, that will sell, that's brilliant, this is lovely, this is cool. I go to Kiston and like, that's great, that's great, that's oh, you know, it's like, well, that's pretty similar to that, that's pretty similar to that. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to drop that out and put that in, and it's, and it's a, it's a considered buy, and. I have the privilege of the people that I work with know how I work. Um, my buying is quite quick. I usually get left alone, which they really like. I just sort of wander about the showroom, chatting about other things whilst picking things off rails and putting them together and cross-referencing with photographs on my phone from previous because I just want it to be this cohesive overall look. So you don't have to buy an outfit from a brand you can select but also I think that's then thinking about perhaps brands that I don't stock that my customer will like and then they can mix it into their wardrobe easily I think is how how I go about it because mm. that's how I that's how I shop I pick pieces and then I make them work that's a very good idea, really, because I think most people, or many people, when they shop, they'll see something and they think, mm. I want that, with mm. little consideration of how it fits into um, into the rest of their collection or wardrobe or whatever. And I know yeah. I'm like that. I'll see yeah. something and think, oh, my God. Um, mm. Which means that I probably have lots of bits and pieces that really don't go together, but there you go. <laughs> and lots of jackets, because we're men, so we have lots of jackets. That goes without saying. Uh, jackets are good. And, and jackets last forever. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. So, which means we end up having lots of jackets that will last forever. So really, uh, yes, our ge- next generations are well taken care of. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned this, the seasonal business. Now, there's been a lot yes. of talk about that lately. Um, uh, all the sort of major fashion houses have gone out and said, oh, we're going to stop you doing seasons and stuff like that. Do you think that's a genuine thing? Will it happen, or is it just a next level marketing crap? Um, I. It's quite interesting because I've 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 spent lockdown sort of, and I've watched several because there's so many kind of fashion house documentaries around at the moment. Whether it be you know the Westwood fi- film, the wonderful film about McQueen. Um, any of those, the triumph that is Valentino in the the Last Emperor. If you haven't seen it, you must see it. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but even I think the most recent, uh, sort of the most up to date was um, the Dior and I, which was when uh, Raf Simmons took over at Dior and literally had eight weeks to produce a collection or something insane. And but the constant thing you get is you get these big houses, they're doing um, spring, summer, autumn, winter. They're doing 
cruise collections which are coming in pre-spring, pre-summer, pre-autumn, pre-winter. Um, they're doing diffusion lines. They're doing, and it's, and you know, it's when you go, oh yeah, I, people think you just do two collections a season a year, but they're actually doing like twenty collections a year, and it just it it becomes insane. And I think if the big houses and the big labels and the big stores start to change, then real change will happen. Um, and I think that there is there is the growing concern that seasonal fashion is kind of ridiculous because with climate change the seasons are starting to become sort of non-existent yeah. which is I mean, it's I all mean, horrific it, it um, clearly is yes it clearly is but it's but it is also when it boils down to it when you go i want to go into a store and buy a jumper in february because it's snowing and all I find is shorts because everyone's got spring summer. Um, and I think for me, going forward, it's definitely, definitely something because the store, when I started, came from an ethical base. So I had British fabrics, recycled fabrics, ethically sourced, fairly traded, all of those kinds of things, which I still do. But then on top of that, you then have the seasonality and I'm like, this is the bit that's now making me go, oh, I can't, I can't. I need to just be selling beautiful products, beautiful pieces, repeat pieces across the season and adapt my store because seasonality is, it's hard work. The last few years with the change of seasons has been really hard work and it will help with the slowing down of the pace of fashion if that makes sense i don't yeah. think i don't think fashion is going to change because uh, fashion is of the moment and it always will be and a, there's a resurgence in classics and there's a resurgence in tradition and i think those are the things that then i'm going to champion because that automatically makes it less seasonal. So at the moment, it's, what are we now? We're mid-June. So um, coming the start of July, I'm starting to get invites to showrooms, and di well, digital showrooms and stuff through to buy for spring, summer next year. And I'm probably not going to buy as much as I used to. Right. Because that, that touches into what I'm sort of a little bit sceptical when these huge companies are saying, well, what they're implying really is that they're going to start making less stuff. But then I can sort of imagine their shareholders sharpening their pitchforks and wondering mm. now where the dividends going to come from because mm. they, none, none of these companies want to sell less stuff. No. I think it's, it is going to be a challenge, but I think it's, I think what a lot of them are going to do, they are going to have... If it's that, this might sound nuts. It might try and make sense. They might oh, have a good more... conspiracy isn't a problem. Yeah, they might have Lay more. Out. They might have more seasons if that makes sense. So there will be kind of there'll be trans seasonal pieces. There'll be cruise collections. There'll be the main collections. But what you'll probably find is that the collections themselves will become more balanced in terms of number of pieces. So you won't no. have the massive influx of winter and then the massive influx of summer. You'll just have a gradual ease <laughs> across the the board, if that makes sense. So really what they're saying isn't what we're not hearing what they're actually saying. Yeah, so they're not, they're not saying they're going to make less. They're yeah, just I mean, going to sort of smooth difficult. it out a bit. Yeah, I think it's going to be difficult to have couture probably for a couple of for at least a season or something because of where we are in the world mm -hmm. um and i think with clothing wise i think it's like there was i read somewhere i forget who who it came from might have been Dries. i can't remember um that they were trying to redress the balance 
of the seasons. So you put summer clothes in the store in summer, not in March. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I can't help thinking they're just trying to deflect criticism because they yes, are, of course, yes. being criticised now. And there is yes. enough stuff you can criticise them on. Yes. But I think, I, th- I don't know, it's it's kind of, it is really, it is really hard. It's like, you know, there's so many fabrics coming through at the moment that are made from, you know, recycled plastic water bottles, um, you know, because polyester is very easy to recycle. Water yeah. bottles are easy to recycle because basically they're a uniform colour and a uniform product. But it's kind of like, just because they're making fabric from recycled water bottles, it still takes energy, it still takes time. And also, if you stop making the water bottles, we then wouldn't have to make fabric out of water bottles. We could just make fabric out of that's, polymers. That's the thing. It can and, be recycled. It's I, that, yeah, it's like just because that's a thing, it still needs to cut off the original thing. Um, mm. So it's sort of, it's quite reluctant to buy in. And it's just, I think it's, you know, it's like just being more aware of where the cotton comes from or where the wool comes from. You know, I was talking to a guy who is a sheep farmer um, online the other day, and he just had to be shearing and was talking about the wool. And I just was like, just out of incidental, where does your wool go? And all the rest of it is like, you know, at the moment, the it all goes through the British Wool Marketing Board and all, all those kinds of people. Um, but there's just no demand. And then in the same breath, you're suddenly getting food packaging and it's pure new wool wrapped in biodegradable plastic. And we're just like, okay, we're replacing plastics with wool, which is great. But we still have things like fleece when it's like, but wool is fleece. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like repurposing things for random reasons just to save on something is kind of insane, but good. Um, But yeah, I just, I, I don't think it's necessarily the big fashion houses either that are, are causing this and the big companies. It is primarily the fast fashion companies that have basically made this rod for their own back. Um, yeah. And I just don't know how you stop that. I don't know how you stop demand. I don't know how you... It just it, The only way I think you do it is through a slow, 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 slow education and an understanding of the products and where it comes from and so on and so forth which boils down to the start point of people like me and like you um going out there and saying you know this we might sell a little bit less but that's not necessarily a bad thing (laughs) Well, that's where it sort of comes into this uh, marketing tactic that's being used now, where mm. is it buy uh, buy better, buy less, mm. Mm. where where you want people to spend more money, really, because they're not going to buy any any less. Let's face it; I mean, people like buying stuff. Yes, but you want them to buy buy better, yes, uh, want, or yes, more expensive. Like, yes, I want them to buy better. I think it's like you know, if you take, for example, my classic Armalux T-shirt, it's a lovely cotton T-shirt. Um, the basics come in like three colours, navy white and a black. I think they're adding a grey, thank God. Um, and then there's seasonal colours. But, you know, I have T-shirts and I'm not even sure how old they are. And they they don't fall apart. They don't shrink. They don't do this. They don't do that. Um, you know, they have a price point that you could probably buy three or four T-shirts in other stores for. But it's kind of... I always keep them and I always sell them and I always recommend it as an add-on if someone's like, oh, but the T-shirt's nice. I'm just like, look, just get one of these. I know it means you're going to spend a bit more money, but get one of these and you'll understand what I'm trying to say, that, you know, they just last. And even if you buy a couple and then you come back to me six months later and buy two or three because you know that they're a quality garment, that's that's achieving the goal of just changing and educating people's minds is like, you just have two or three, you don't need seven. (laughs) Yeah. You know, (laughs) and you know, and the buying better means you can probably pay a bit more, you know, you might buy it, you know, pay a higher price for the garment 
I might pay a higher price as a, a wholesale purchaser, but you know, you know the ethics, you know the origins, all of those things of those garments and and other products as well, like other lifestyle products as well. And you know, I that's the thing that I find important, and that's the thing I hope that people will also find important. You know, after that factory collapsed in Bangladesh, which was, I don't know how many years ago now, that was kind of the initial turning point. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? That was very much a turning point where people were like, okay, so that happened? And it's like, yeah. You know, I even have to educate my mom on it occasionally. She's like, oh, I love such and such a brand. And I'm like, do you know where it comes from? And she's like, no idea. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's very sad uh, and there's also it's also sad how many people talk about it and act very concerned but then mm. they pop down to Primark the next day anyway mm. but I think it's interesting because it's something where people will discuss where their food comes from or they'll they'll go and get some artisan sourdough or they'll get a certain craft beer but then they'll get a pair of jeans off, off Amazon, say, and you're like, yeah. you need to care about all the aspects. So, yeah. That sort of brings us nicely into um, to, to my final topic. Mm-hmm. Now, there's something that has bugged me for a while now, and that's <laughs> how, what is the real price of something? Because you'll see something in the shop at full retail. Mm-hmm. A week later, it'll be the mid-season sale, and it'll be 50% off. Uh-huh. week after, it's back up to full retail. Then you might have Black Friday, and it's 70% off. Uh-huh. Uh, before you know it, it's the end-of-season sale, where it tapers down, <laughs> increasing discount. Uh-huh. I mean, how can someone wanting to buy something actually know what it's worth? Because, I mean, as humans, we do like to get a deal or pay the right price. Yes. Um, so what is it (laughs) (laughs) interesting Um, so as as I said before I I buy outfits and I buy wardrobes Um, I also buy small so say each each garment I have I probably have a maximum of five pieces across the size range, which would be like a small, two mediums, two larges, and XL, say, uh, depending on fit. Um, Products come with a wholesale price. (laughs) Uh, They then have a a retail price, um, which is fairly standard across the board with markups and things like that. the true price of things, um, everything will be sold for a profit on behalf of both a wholesaler or a retailer or a retailer who manufactures. Um, I think the problem comes when um, you you remove the the value, and I think if you have say for example a product that is uh it's a british milled cloth so therefore it's millers beavers in a developed country on a good wage not living wage um then it goes to a factory in this country where it's then cut by a cutter stitched up by machinists um and then sold for a price, then Mm. it comes to retail it and they sell it for a price or that person sells for a price, you know that the money from that product goes into all of those people's pockets. Mm. If you go and pick up a T-shirt or a top or a dress or whatever from an online store or even a high street store if those things still exist, um and it costs you 20 quid and if the the retailer is making half of that as profit 
and the manufacturer is making profit off that, how much is the person that sewed that dress together being paid? Um, as for the question of how much something costs with the prices going up and down, um, that's something personally that I don't do. Um, I think I did a Black Friday deal once, even though I was quite like, I'm not American. I haven't had Thanksgiving dinner last night with my friends and family. <laughs> Why would I do this? And I think the first customer through the door, I I said, oh, there's 25% off for Black Friday. And they were like, why are you doing that? You're a British retailer that sells British things. And I went, my point exactly. <laughs> um, so I just, I just don't do it, which I think is, I, I just don't want to buy into that, that world because it's, it's got nothing to do with the country in which I live. It's mm. an imported thing. Um, it must have been an odd, odd moment as well to be shamed by a customer for offering a discount. Yes, exactly, which is always interesting. <laughs> now I want to pay you more. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, I think it's when you when you sell things of value and you sell things of value in such a way that um, keeps their value. And I just think it's, I think it's easy because I think maybe high street retailers have gone, they've had to compete with online, so therefore they're offering discounts left, right and centre. But also I think sometimes it's detrimental to the product and it's detrimental to the brand or to the... Because if you start doing it too much, people expect it, so you can never stop. I think a Um, lot of the problem is that. Yes. It's like I remember years ago, Gap always used to do, they'd have a, a... a launch, new season, sale, new product, few weeks, sale, and so on and so on and so on. And you kind of, that was pre the sort of fast fashion world and it still works in the same way, but it's, so I think what's happened now is things have just been cheap and it's, it's really weird. I have like a really strange gripe with it and I think it sort of comes from design and it comes from, a background but it, it probably makes you sound like a bit of an ass. But I can't I can't sort of abide like a copy of something <laughs> that becomes you know like say Ugg boots. Yeah. You know, sort of They were horrible and then they made horrible copies of them. But they were they were worn <laughs> by a certain Yeah. Yeah, because they were they were worn in a you know a post surf way. You wear a mm. flip-flop during the day, you wear your Uggs afterwards and you chill out and, and that's what it was. They're not, uh, that's what, you know, and it's it's things like that. And I think that's that's where it gets confusing because it all, it all lessens and cheapens and copies and hybrids thereof. And it, but yeah, I think it just boils down to now, if you want to, if you want to change and you want to do something like that within the fashion industry, you just have to, stop and think about the price of the product and where that product comes from and even more importantly now with everything that's going on um, with race issues is also considering where that product comes from and who's made your product and under what circumstances Mm. because as much as you know statues are being torn down in Bristol here to uh, because of the background and the history and the abuse, it still happens because you cannot make a t-shirt for four pounds and pay someone wherever they are in the world, a wage for which they can live on without there being some form of abuse. Hmm. And I think that's, uh, that's where people can start making a difference. And it's, you know, it's kind of with all the fashion, with people in stores at the moment, like culling orders for autumn, winter because of the pandemic. So they're culling orders because they don't want to have the stock to sell because they don't think people will be shopping in the same way in a shopping mall in Birmingham. It's But how does that affect a town somewhere in the Far East? You know, it's... 
it's that, and I th- and I think that's where if you want to go with seasonality and you want to go with fast fashion, you want to go with things like that. That's where you have to change. It has to be thought about in a way because those manufacturers will always adapt and mm. it will always survive. Um, but it, you just need it's it's su- it's such a tricky thing to. It is. I mean, it's not some simple problem with a simple solution. It's no, a no. it's a whole load of problems with a really complicated, yes, possibly really not a solution. <laughs> you can't be idealistic about it. It's you know, but me as a person, as a buyer, as a as a retailer, it's those are the things that I think about, and you know, hope to I sell and educate simultaneously. And, you know, those are the things that come back to just being important. And that's how you'll, that's how eventually it will, it will start to slow. Mm. Hopefully. On, on this thoughtful note, mm. one final question I'd like to ask you. Mm. Um, I, I find the word sustainability is popping up everywhere and is used in all sorts of occasions. And it strikes me that a lot of the people using it probably don't really know what they mean when they say it. Mm-hmm. So what does sustainability mean to you? I think sustainability to me is uh, a lot of those things that I've just talked about. It's sustainability is understanding where a product comes from. It's the life of that product. It's the lives that that product is supporting. And but then with sustainability it goes back to how is how is the fabric produced where is the fabric produced how is that impacting on the environment how does that fabric get if it comes from around the world how does it get around the world you know that's that's what sustainability is um and it's just sustainability comes with you know it's reduction and it comes and you know it's understanding and yeah that's what it is it's like i think i said with the with the with the water bottle scenario mm. it's like that's great and that fabric can be continuously recycled um but also it could be recycled if it was just fabric does that make sense <laughs> um, well, f- fabric re- fabric recycling is a very very trip- tricky uh, tricky topic. Um, yes, yes. I- I'll have another guest who has a lot to say on that matter. Yes, which, uh, but, yeah, um, I think sustainability is just knowing the origin of the components of the garment you're selling, whether it be the Caruso nut buttons whether it be the zips, whether it be the waxed fabric, whether it be the the cotton, the organic cotton, all of those things, you know, and also understanding the history of where it comes from, um, you know, and knowing that Italians make great fabric, the Italians make great mm. wool, Japan makes great denim, and why do they make great denim? Um, Turkey makes great cotton, they do really good organic cotton. It's knowing historically why those places are good for what they do as well mm. as you know i think it's it's that that's what drives sustainability rather more than oh yeah we're fully sustainable okay great sustainability is almost like it's the new environmental it's you know it's like with bio it's 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 all of that mm. you know it needs to yeah, and I think you know going forward what I was saying earlier it's like going forward what I'm doing and how I want to buy and how I want and my store to move forward and progress. I think that's an integral part of how the industry will change, to be fair. Very good. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today, uh, Anthony. It's been Thank an absolute so much pleasure. For me. Thank you. And uh, talk again soon. Cool. And see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. That's all for this episode of Gomology. 
If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe and I would really appreciate a good rating. Thanks for listening in and see you next time.